Thanks to all who have contributed to our worship today. Carla, Max, the choir, musicians. Um, it is such a great honor and privilege to be here with you. This has been a spiritual home for many in my family, uh, for Benjamin and Catherine, now Ben and Giles, and I'm glad he arrived so that we could start. <laughs> but also my brother Bill, who served on staff here at St. Luke's many, many moons ago as a freshman at Millsaps. Uh, it has indeed been a spiritual home for many of us. I have to say, though, one of the things that I admire most about St. Luke is its, um, is its special place for children. Uh, and you know, as we gather for worship and uh, go through the earlier parts of the service and all the children are here, you know, and every once in a while we'll hear that young child's voice. And sometimes we'll hear that young child's voice that just won't stop. And, but we still honor that and realize that Jesus said, let the children come unto me, for such to them is the kingdom of heaven. I, I remember the story about the little fellow who was in church. He'd been, he'd been sitting as still as he could, and his parents had, you know, been trying to shape and mold him so that he could participate in worship, but he on this particular Sunday, he just could not be quiet. And finally, his father had had enough, and he jerked him up by the arm and gathered him up in his arms and was headed out the door with him. And the little boy goes, pray for me, pray for me. Knew what was coming. As we take a look at the Gospel of Luke, we know that this is an extraordinary story. The gospel is an extraordinary story. But I have to say that for me, the gospel of Luke is its best expression. It's an extraordinary story reflected in humility and irony and some of the most treasured stories that we have that Jesus told. But you might be asking, if you've looked at the sermon title today, what is ordinary time? Well, if you think a little bit about the church year, that will help you out. We have two big seasons of the church year, big celebratory seasons. The color is white on our, in our paraments when we celebrate Christmas and when we celebrate Easter. And then we have those seasons of pre preparation as we get ready for those two big seasons. We have Advent before Christmas and we have Lent before Easter. They end, those two big seasons, end with special days. With, uh, with Christmas, it ends at the Epiphany, the appearance of the wise men to worship Jesus. And then also, when we get to the end of Easter season, we celebrate the day of Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit. But think about what, what is the rest of the time? Well, sometimes we express it as the season after Epiphany or the season after Pentecost. But really what it is, is ordinary time. When we go through the, the teachings, the, the travels, the works of Jesus that he did. 
And we do that by following the synoptic gospels in three different years, year A, year B, year C. The first year, year A, based on the readings from the Gospel of Matthew, year B, on readings from the Gospel of Mark, year C, on readings from the Gospel of Luke. So guess what year we are in? It is year C, and we are entering ordinary time, and we're going to be taking a look at what Luke would have to say to us for about six months until we get back to Advent. Who was Luke? Luke was a physician, a companion of Paul, probably with Paul in prison. He wasn't a famous man, but likely the actual author of this Gospel of Luke. And why is Luke's story such an extraordinary story? Well, he's a good writer. He's historically accurate with things that he gives to us. He uses good Greek, according to biblical scholars. He sets Jesus in the full context of God's purposes, the salvation of the world. And if there is a, a wild, wonderful world to which God reaches, Luke is the one that expresses it best. It's a gospel for everybody. Unlike Matthew, which was written likely for a Jewish Christian audience, unlike Mark, that is the gospel of the cross, Luke is a gospel for everybody, a gospel that favors the humble and the poor, a gospel that celebrates that the last shall be first. Now, I hope that you have taken my challenge, that some time in the last two weeks you have read the full Gospel of Luke, and if you haven't yet, please do so, because I think your experience of preaching over the next six months will be enriched by your knowledge and understanding of what Luke has given us. Now, if you take a look at this story, the healing of the centurion's slave, you'll see it there in Luke chapter 7. But you could also look in Matthew chapter 8 and find a very close parallel to what we have given to us by Luke. And in John, the parallel, while much less similar, is in the fourth chapter. These parallels, though, if you take a look at all three expressions of the story, bring forth some very interesting questions about Gospels in general. For example, why would Luke and Matthew have such an almost identical version? Why would their words that they used be so close that from time to time they are identical? Why is this particular story missing from Mark? And if John's version is indeed a parallel, why is John's version so substantially different? Differences like it's not a centurion, it's a Roman official. It's, uh, it's not where he sends somebody to speak to Jesus, he comes himself. And it's not a slave who's ill, it's his son. There are 
geographical differences with synoptic gospels. This takes place as Jesus returns to Galilee from Judea in John. But the synoptic gospels have a whole different geography. Why should we care? Why should we care that Mark's a little, a little different from John? Why should we care that Matthew and Luke's are so similar? We care because as Christians, we're people of the book. And I hope that in the course of your life, you will learn more and more about that book. A couple of things I, I want to share with you today. Now you're going to have to bear with me just a little bit because it gets a little technical, but I'm sure some of you have heard it before. For some of you, it'll be the first hearing. How did Mark and Luke and Matthew and John come to be? Well, largely, they came out of oral traditions. Biblical scholars have come to understand that Mark was written about, about 60 A.D., about 30 years after the death of Jesus. But Mark's, Mark's uh, chronology, his laying out of the story, the geography of Mark is identical to that of Matthew and Luke. So here's what biblical scholars think. Just kind of think of, of the pulpit here as the gospel of Mark. And if, if the Synoptic Gospels of Mark, Matthew, and Luke all have the same geography and the same chronology, then their understanding is that Matthew and Luke were probably looking at the Gospel of Mark as they wrote. So Mark was a source that Matthew and Luke used, but there were others. We also see in the Gospels that there are stories that are particular only to those Gospels. So Matthew had some of his own stories that he knew that seemingly other Gospel writers did not. For example, in Matthew, who do we hear about early on in that Gospel that we get nowhere else? We hear about the Magi. And what do we get in Luke's Gospel that is different from all of the other Gospels? the infancy narratives, the birth narrative of Jesus as he was born. And that's true for other stories. For example, in Luke, you have the Good Samaritan, you have the prodigal son, about which Matthew and Mark seem not to know. So if Matthew, well, let's see, you're looking from that. If Matthew, the first gospel, draws from Mark, he also has some of his own material. They call that the M source. And then if Luke has some of those things that he draws from that nobody else seems to know, that's the L source. So we have Mark and we have M, we have L. But then Matthew and Luke have some stories that they share. Things like the Sermon on the Mount the teachings of Jesus. And in Matthew, they come to us through the Sermon on the Mount and Luke in the Sermon on the Plain. But both set aside as bodies of teaching work that Jesus presents, very similar in Matthew and Luke. All this biblical analysis is, oh, 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 one other source. 
Those things, I forgot to tell you, are called the Q source. Now, I'm not trying to convey some sort of uh, conspiratory theory about the Gospels and how they were formed in the use of Q. <laughs> but Q stands for koile, an ancient word that means source, nothing more. So we've got Mark, and we've got M, and we've got L, and we've got Q. They all come together in forming the synoptic gospels. And all of that is fine. It's great to know some things like that if you want to come to a better understanding of where we get the gospels from. But what is the word for us today? When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, asking him to come and heal his slave. And when they came to Jesus, they appealed to him earnestly, saying, He's worthy of having you do this for him, for he loves our people, and it is he who built our synagogue for us. Why does Jesus bring healing? The centurion sends these Jewish elders who come touting the centurion's finer characteristics to ask Jesus to come. And they say, this is a great guy. He's a good man. We know he's a Roman, but he's a good man. And he loves our people. In fact, he built our synagogue for us. Having been to Capernaum, Having seen the synagogue there, it almost reflects some of Roman architecture that you can see at work in that small synagogue. Now, Roman soldiers in general were not appreciated by the Jews. Their leaders were seldom concerned about local affairs, but this centurion seemed to be different. We know what this looks like as Americans. We've seen, we've seen nation building in other places. We've done some of that ourselves in countries around the world because we'd like to win the approval and cooperation of the people. Some of the Romans took that practice to heart. Despite the goodness of this particular man, though, the story reveals one of our human tendencies. And this is our common tendency, even our common sin. We think we earn our way to Jesus. We think we even deserve our audience with Jesus. But based on the elders' invitation, Jesus agrees to go with them, and he's on his way. Motivated, motivated by the elder's request? Maybe so, but do you think they're trying to show us that it's not what you know, but who you know? Jesus is motivated by the centurion's merits. He's good enough. He's better than most? Is Jesus motivated by the slave's need? 
the servant is in such bad shape. I guess we can't be sure why Jesus is making his way. We don't give, we're not given the thoughts in his head or what he plans to do. Not because, I, I guess we can't be sure, but I don't think it's any of that. You know what I think it is? I think Jesus is on his way for a healing because he can. Because he can. Not because we deserve it, but because he can do it. Because he wants to bring healing and wholeness into the brokenness of our lives. But, but check this out. When Jesus is not far from the house, the centurion sends friends. And Jesus went with them, but when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you, but only speak the word and my servant will be healed. Don't trouble yourself to come to my house. I'm not worthy, but only speak the word and let my servant be healed. The words seem to be spoken by the centurion himself, but he considers himself not worthy enough even to speak to Jesus face to face, much less to ask Jesus for this healing. But he knows, he believes, that all Jesus has to do is speak the word. And this is our common lesson. We have to learn how to peel back the facade of who we are. You know, I've seen little boys do this from time to time. Someone will talk to them about how strong they are, you know, and, and they'll flex their muscles. Or they're like this. I have to admit, one time when I was serving in Columbus, I did a one-man play and, and portrayed a centurion. And they got me a... a an outfit to be the centurion complete with the little leather skirt and, uh, and those things they put on the shin guards, you know, that they would wear. And then they gave me this breastplate, but it wasn't shaped like me. It was shaped by that muscular centurion, big chested, broad shoulders, but it wasn't me. You see, Jesus doesn't heal us because we're strong enough, but because we're broken. Another part of our common lesson is we have to learn how to honestly acknowledge our smallness compared to Jesus. Jesus is the one who can, I have to remember that I can't. I'm not worthy. 
And then lastly, the part of the common lesson is that we need to have the faith that Jesus knows and can address our need. He can. Jesus, you can. You alone are worthy. You know, one of the things that I like about our Methodist theology of sacraments is that we see them as an expression of what God is doing. When we come to the table and receive the elements of communion, it's an expression of God's grace given to us. It's not an expression that we believe, and so we come down here and we celebrate that at the, at the altar rail, but it's rather we come and receive this outward sign of an inward and spiritual grace that is given to us here at the table. When we celebrate baptism, it is an outward and visible sign of what God is doing in the life of that young individual. Not that he comes or she comes to profess their faith, but rather to be an outward sign of what God is doing. That's why, and I know it's not a communion Sunday, but it is in this lesson that we find the table open to us. If you look in your bulletin today, I find that this prayer, it's printed right down below the sermon title there. This is a prayer that comes from the book of worship. It's not in your hymnal, we might have looked at it there, but there are different kind of prayers that express the same thing. But this could have been the prayer of the centurion. And I would invite you to pray it with me. We do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same, Lord, whose property is always to have mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to partake of this sacrament of thy Son, Jesus Christ, that we may walk in newness of life, may grow into his likeness, and may evermore dwell in him and he in us. Amen. The deeply spiritual word for us here today is that word that tells us to approach the table with this kind of humility. Lord, don't trouble yourself. We're not worthy to have you come under our roof. And he still shows up. He speaks his word. He brings healing. He brings new life. Because he can. Because we can't. Because for him, it's no trouble at all. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our closing hymn this morning is number 714. I know whom I have believed. 
What a wonderful hymn to help us remember who we are as people of faith. And I pray that you will hear the call of God upon your life and respond to it in the way that feels best to you as we sing this closing hymn together. Let's stand.